Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, John Zell Anderson, licensed professional counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. Hello, everyone. This episode is actually being recorded on Thanksgiving Day. However, I know that it's not going to go up until probably the Monday after Thanksgiving. So for all of you listening, I hope that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving with friends and family. Uh, Today's episode, I'm going to talk about a specific chapter in a book by Justin Baldoni. It's called Man Enough, Undefining My Masculinity. I've done a book review on that on my blog before. Um, but for the purposes of this podcast, I, um, I reread books, um, if they're really good. And this is one of those ones that I've really loved. So, um, as I was going through this book again, I, there's a chapter called privileged enough, the reality of my racism and white male privilege. Um, and so Justin Baldoni, a lot of people know him as Raphael Solano on the TV show Jane the Virgin. Um, and so I thought it'd be interesting to share some of the insights from that that chapter. The, one of the things I really like about Justin Baldoni's book is that he's very um, uh, introspective and kind of uh, works really hard on gaining awareness of various different things. Uh, throughout the book. Um, But for the purposes of this podcast, like I said, I'm just going to focus on the chapter about white privilege and racism and stuff like that. So to get into this, I'm going to share his preface to the title to kind of give some context here. Quote, I know how politicized and polarizing the word privilege has become. This isn't about partisan politics, although an argument can be made that everything is inherently political. This is about humanity and my coming to terms with my own worldviews and behaviors that have hurt people I love and contributed to a world where inequality and injustice run rampant, end quote. Um, And so the next part that I'm going to share, he kind of goes into why this Uh, why this chapter was included in a book about masculinity. Quote, in a book largely based on vulnerability and transparency, I would be remiss not to make it known that this chapter was written last, yet it is going in the middle of the book. I had finished writing more than 80,000 words, touching on my whiteness here and there, mostly reiterating that my story, this book, was of course written through my lens as a white male. But I never really dove into the systemic racism, and definitely not my personal racism, that's very much at play in my story and in my socialization. Then, on May 25th, 2020, George Floyd, a black American man, was murdered by police officers in Minneapolis. While Mr. Floyd was far from the first black person to be murdered by police, there was a difference in the collective response of white people to his murder, both here in the United States and abroad. 
It's been said that 2020 was about finally being able to see things clearly. And for many of us, white folks, seeing Mr. Floyd murdered by a police officer while others stood by and did nothing was enough to see clearly that perhaps there has been and continues to be a larger problem and that we are a part of it. I was forced to really look at why I hadn't responded with the same outrage to previous murders why I wasn't using my voice and the megaphone given to my voice for anti-racism. What was it in me that chose to ignore this problem in the same way that many men ignore their socialized masculinity? It's my job, my responsibility, my duty, not only to figure out the answers to these questions, but also to use the resources readily available to me to educate myself and use the unearned power I have been given as a white man to help change the system so it is more equitable for everyone, end quote. So being that it's 2021 now, a lot of people, celebrities, um, writers, artists, and things like that have kind of come out and say that their awareness of systemic racism wasn't really ignited until the events of 2020 with things like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Um, So this, uh, and the reason I'm sharing this chapter on this podcast is because we get the perspective of a white male who has both white privilege and male privilege, um, kind of reflecting on his journey of how he came to awareness of it And as you'll see in the following quotes, kind of how he um, took that awareness and started to change his perspectives and how he deals with uh, racism in his own life. And obviously using his celebrity platform to um, raise awareness about this and to start changing some things as well. Quote, it's only been in the past few years that I have learned that the idea that I exist in intersecting areas of privilege and should be using those privileges to advocate on behalf of those on the other end of the spectrum is part of what's called intersectionality, a term that has been used to fight for equality and equity by activists and organizers for more than three decades. Kimberly Crenshaw, a professor of law at UCLA and Columbia Law School, coined the term intersectionality in 1989 when she published a paper that focused on legal cases that dealt with issues of both racial and sexual discrimination. Crenshaw describes intersectionality as a lens through which you can see where power comes and collides, where it interlocks and intersects. It's not simply that there's a race problem here, a gender problem here a class or LGBTQ problem there. Many times that framework erases what happens to people who are subject to all of these things, end quote. And so the next uh, following quotes are actually going to be some examples that um, Justin Baldoni gives uh, of how racism, how he's responded to racism in at various points in his life. And um, I I really appreciate these perspectives because 
I'm usually on this podcast, I'm talking about my interpretation of current events and books that I read from, you know, my own awareness and vantage point of how things like racism and privilege and stuff like that impact me. But I always enjoy um, either books of essays or memoirs because I get to kind of be in somebody else's shoes for a little bit. So, um, and I think when we put ourselves in somebody else's shoes, we have an opportunity to learn. Um, so here's one of the first stories that um, he gives. It's it's a little bit of a long one, but I want to share. Um, I kind of broke it up so that it's not completely verbatim, but um, I'm going to read this because the story in a whole is um, very impactful, and I think it teaches a few things. Probably won't give too much commentary on it because it kind of speaks for itself. Soon after Emily and I were married, a small group of six of our friends flew from Los Angeles to Nashville, Tennessee for a wedding. Kay was in that group, and auto and not only was she the only black woman in the group, she also was the only black person at the wedding. The wedding was beautiful and fun, and the newly married couple reveled in the joy of being surrounded by their loved ones. After the celebration, our group of six headed out together to go explore the nightlife in Nashville. As we got into the car, Kay began to cry. Something at the wedding had gone completely unnoticed by the rest of us and had deeply hurt her. And the fact that none of us had the awareness to notice she was uncomfortable and hurt made it even worse. When we first arrived at the wedding, each guest was handed a program and a small bag with instructions to toss the contents of the bag in the air toward the married couple as they walked up the aisle. At some weddings, this happens with bubbles or rice. Others lead the couple out of the reception with sparklers. At this wedding, however, each bag was filled with fresh cotton that we were to pick apart and toss like confetti in celebration of their love. That's right, Kay was being asked to throw in celebration what her ancestors were forced to pick in slavery. There are some of you who may read that and have your jaw drop at how painful, triggering, and emotional that must have been for Kay. Perhaps you instantly knew, before you even read it, that the bag was filled with cotton. You will empathize with her, and if you're black, it will undoubtedly remind you of similar stories in your own life and the lives of your friends and family. There are also some of you that may read that and wonder what the hell the big deal was. Of course, the bride and groom didn't choose cotton for its implications of slavery, you will not only be confused by Kay's reaction, but you will be frustrated by it and feel that it is irrational. I get both reactions, because our initial reaction to our dear friend was the latter, and unfortunately, it took us way too damn long to get to the former. Later that night, when Kay shared her raw feelings and her experience at the wedding and the pain around the cotton, instead of listening, empathizing, and honoring her, as a group, we downplayed the whole situation, and in doing so, we downplayed her feelings and really her humanity. We bypassed her pain and came to the defense of the couple, 
imploring her to know that they were good people and it had nothing to do with race. She felt abandoned and told us that she did not feel seen by us. With the intention of being peacemaker and bringing unity, I responded to Kay's pain by telling her that when I look at her, I don't see a black woman. I just see my friend. I don't see color. I see her heart. In other words, I made her exact point. As a white person, I was taught to say that we don't see color. We don't see our differences, that we treat everyone equally. While this concept of colorblindness initially sounds very nice and idealistic to white people, it not only ignores the socialization and foundation on which the United States was built, it also ignores the very rich, beautiful cultures and humanity of people of color. In fact, the statement, I don't see color from a white person, regardless of how well-intentioned it is, oftentimes comes across to a person of color just as it is decay, as, I choose not to see you. Look, it's no secret we all see color, regardless of what color we are. So when a white person tells a black person they don't see color, what they are actually trying to say is, I'm not a racist. But when I said that to Kay, what I was actually telling her was that even though I know she is black, I have chosen to ignore it and whitewash her into a friendship that meets my preferred boundaries, not hers. Side note, listeners, you might be able to hear my dog snoring in the background. How did I miss it? As a group, we were oblivious to Kay's pain, and when she held it out in front of us and shared it with us, we closed our eyes not to mention our minds and our hearts, to her. After we returned home from the trip, Kay emailed the group and and in justified anger exclaimed, that was some fucked up shit. She explained how she expected better of us and how deeply hurt she was by the entire situation. She went on to say, that night I realized that my dear friends who aspire to unity in a diverse global society had no idea what my pain looks like. I was shaking, and I was on the same couch as you, and you did not see me. You didn't even know to look. Her email was honest, and it was educational, which she shouldn't have to do, to carry the weight and spend the energy on educating us on why her discomfort, pain, and anger are valid. She finished the email with, My life as a black woman has taught me not to react. I'd run the risk of being dismissed as dramatic, volatile, or unintelligent, or worse, ostracized and completely alone. Airing my deepest emotions in the moment is a privilege I have never had. In a situation where I feel isolated and stepped on, I will bury my reaction and survive. I wish I could say that her email flipped the switch for us. Looking back on that email now, it's almost unbelievable to me that I didn't get it that I didn't rush to apologize and start unpacking all the reasons why I missed it and why I wasn't there for her. Someone I loved bared her soul and showed me her painting right in front of me, and I was too willfully ignorant to see it and too proud and fragile to hold it. I'm profoundly embarrassed by what happened next. Instead of calling her immediately, my wife and I, in our confusion and privilege, flipped the narrative centered on our own emotions, and in many ways turned our own privilege into victimhood, feeling like 
we were the ones who were irrationally attacked and that she was blowing things out of proportion. Over the next six years, little by little, I would begin learning from and actually listening to my black friends when they shared their experiences that were similar to Kay's. And as I began my journey of self-discovery and dug into my masculinity little by little, I would notice the intersection of these racial justice conversations with the journey I was on. Every so often, I would think about the situation with Kay and I would feel deep remorse about how I handled it, how I mishandled her feelings and her humanity. I would feel that knot in my gut, that weight on my heart, that would tell me I need to apologize to her. But I would inevitably brush it aside, telling myself that we were all friends, and since everyone had moved on, bringing, up it, bringing it up again would just open old wounds. Then George Floyd was killed. It should not have taken his death and the countless other deaths that had come before and would continue to come after. It should not have taken stay-at-home orders during a global pandemic. It should have not have taken all that it did for me to pick up the phone and call Kay. It is problematic that it took so much on a societal level, and it is problematic that it cost Kay so much on a personal level for my wife and me to call and apologize, for us to see how wrong we were and how deeply loving and profoundly kind Kay's email had truly been. But regrettably and embarrassingly, it did. I have to admit, Emily and I were extremely nervous when we reached out to her and asked to FaceTime. I'll spare you the details of the conversation, but all in all, what we wanted to convey to her was how deeply sorry we were, not only for what happened, but also how we let her down as friends and as fellow humans. We let her know that it was thanks to her and her vulnerability and willingness in her pain to educate her white friends that we both had finally chosen to educate ourselves and begin to unlearn and relearn all we thought we knew. I let her know how problematic my behavior was when I told her I don't see color, and more than anything, how sorry we were it took us as long as it did to wake up. I then promised her that I would do everything I could do to educate myself and my family and have those uncomfortable conversations with fellow white people as the burden shouldn't be on her and other black folks to educate white people. Kay responded to our apology in a way that she didn't she did not need to, in a way that frankly we did not deserve. She offered us grace from the same deep well of love that she had always lived her life with. She accepted our apology and reconciled with us. When we see each other, skin color and all, the contingent world one of justice and equity will not come at such a high price to black people, to the phenomenal black woman that Kay is, end quote. There's a lot to unpack there, um, but I'm going to keep it concise. Also, I shared earlier that we may hear my dog snoring. Uh, I mentioned that it is also Thanksgiving Day, so some of the neighborhood kids are running around outside, like screaming and playing. So I'm just cueing you in on the ambiance of this episode, but I'm going to keep it rolling. So there's a lot that can be learned from that story. A couple things that jumped out to me were that the defensiveness that white people have when they're called out on not showing up or uh, advocating, I've witnessed that time and time again. Also, as a biracial person, 
um, dealing with my own, the white part of my family. I see that all the time. And I, I appreciate how vulnerable he was in sharing the story and kind of all of the pitfalls that had happened um, and kind of how that played out. But I think between how Kay expressed how she felt initially afterwards and then even years later um there were so many lessons to be taught in there and i i appreciate the humility that uh justin baldoni had in sharing that story because some people might spin the story to make themselves sound like the hero um but this you can tell that the the lessons being learned and the awareness um came from a genuine place so that was refreshing to hear and see, even though this is like my third time through this book. Hello, listeners. So in hindsight, after I recorded this episode in one sitting, I realized that it needed to be split in two for keeping with the under 30 minutes uh, theme that I've been trying to do lately. Um, So it may seem like this episode is ending abruptly, but just know that it is a conversation being cut in half so that it doesn't go on too long. So be sure to tune in for the second part of this conversation when the episode comes out. But until then, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast. And best of all, it's free. They offer creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor also distributes your podcast, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many more. Did I mention that you can make money from your podcast no matter the size of your following? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today.